All right. Uh, so, hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I am Colin, the main host, uh, and tonight I am joined by Kristen. Welcome back, Kristen. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to have you back on the show. It's It has been a hiatus for us all, but I'm very glad uh, to have you back uh, back here discussing. Yeah, I'm super excited. This is a great episode. <laughs> yes. So we're going to be talking about uh, from the first season of Legend of Korra, episode 10, Turning the Tides. Um, so previously, Kevin and I discussed uh, the last episode, um, Out of the Past, um, and what happened then, uh, just kind of get us a quick recap, uh, to bring us up to speed while imprisoned by Tarlock, Korra connected with Aang, uh, who showed her moments from his past. Um, basically him arresting Yakone with Toph, Yakone's trial and everything that came with that being him being a bloodbender and his lineage. Uh, so Lynn goes rogue, uh, during this, uh, she decides that she needs to go, outside the law, uh, busts out Mako, Bolin, and Asami. Um, and then with the help of Tenzin, they infiltrate the Equalist underground bunker to rescue Lin's metal benders and perhaps Korra. Uh, Mako rages because n- there are no answers and where is Korra? Um, their success is met with a bittersweet resolution, though. The metal benders lost their bending and Korra was not there. Instead, taken by Tarlock to his secluded cabin, up in the mountains, uh, the crew decides to confront Tarlock. They put him in a corner, and he is forced to reveal his true identity as a bloodbender, which he uses to knock them all out and escape to his cabin. Uh, with plans to whisk Korra away, Tarlock finds them stop short as Amon and his crew show up at his door. Resisting the thrall of Tarlock's bloodbending, Amon takes Tarlock's bending away, and Korra manages to escape. Luckily, Naga finds her in the snow, and uh, Korra makes her way back to the city. And that's where we're going to start off our discussion here. Um, You know, again, as I said in the last episode, uh, my only kind of tiff with with these two episodes is just how extra Mako is being during during these uh, these times and right out the gate. Mako is just like pushing people out of the way. It's like, give her some space. Give her some space. And it's like, come yeah, on, he's man. Yeah, pretty dramatic and over the top about it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's so strange too because while he has always come off as the protective type, he certainly hasn't done this for Asami. And I don't think any of us doubted his attraction and his feelings for Asami. We all knew he was like kind of juggling her and Korra around a bit. But, you know, he never did this for Asami. And I guess to a certain degree, like, he might feel that way about Korra because of all the danger she's constantly put in. But Asami's a non-bender, so you would think that he would feel like she's the most vulnerable person. But at the same time, I guess she's still rich and has a lot of cool stuff. It's just one of those things where it's like, it, it, you're right, it it feels so extra for the sake of being extra. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, again, you know, as we said last time, it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that they thought that this was going to be the only season. Um, they wanted to have some kind of relationship. And I think with where Mako and Cora end up at the end of the season, um, in terms of what we're going to see with their like kind of showdown with Aman, I think that there, there's like some really, there's some really great, chemistry there to work with but again it's this idea that like you know it didn't have to be uh a relationship but if you only think that you're gonna go one season usually that's a thing to to work towards a good payoff but but still uh i, I don't want to harp on it too much but i i did want to bring that up just because i remember re-watching this and i'm like mako come on man <laughs> He's a terrible heartbender. <laughs> uh, so that brings us uh, to um, Air Temple Island. Um, Cora is recovering. She is just like mowing down on like a bunch of food. <laughs> Everyone just keeps bringing her food. It's amazing. Um, and then uh, as the plates are kind of clearing, Asami offers to help Pema in the kitchen. Um so they're kind of there in the kitchen just for a brief moment. And then Mako comes in again, <laughs> extra Mako. 
Cora needs more tea. <laughs> and then Asami. Uh, Asami with the clapback of the century. You're a firebender. Boil it yourself. <laughs> And and that and when I rewatched that, it did remind me too because Iro did that. That's how Iro got caught as a firebender was warming up his own tea. Yep. I feel like boiling your own water, especially for an orphan who's been homeless, should be a given. Yeah. I, again, I think it's like it's very much. He is kind of so swept up in this whole situation that he's not clearly even like thinking straight and i think like you know rightly so asami is just like dude what is wrong with you <laughs> like you need to get collect yourself but i love that like pema just immediately reads the room and she's just, like, oh my god her face <laughs> as she's leaving is golden well because she also knows she also knows that she's the one who instigated it when she told Cora to just like go for it and when Cora went in for the kiss which kind of like led to a lot of this this tension with everything and it's like Pema's like oh boy uh well I'm... and you know it's funny she's been the cause of it too with Tenzin and Lynn so yep. I feel like she's just kind of used to running away from these awkward situations like not my circus and just like bailing she stirs the pot and then she she gets out the kitchen <laughs> and she's like i'm not burning my tongue on this <laughs> and i have to admit i really this is one of my turning points for asami's character because i think this oh, is where yes. i really started to like her because in the first minutes when we see her watching mako she looks sad and i'm like oh she's just gonna be like all mopey about this like she's been such a cool character like doing all these cool things and now suddenly she's gonna get mopey but instead she just gets pissed and i was like oh okay this is reasonable like her reactions to mako are completely reasonable she doesn't shy away from it she doesn't let him walk all over her. she doesn't let him gaslight her which he yes. borderline does when he acts like he doesn't understand why she's upset and she has to spell out the kiss to him like she doesn't take any of it yes ah that's so true Ah, and it's just like, you know, her just wanting to get like get right to it. Uh, you know, again, she's she's not going to let Mako just try to dance around this. And she's like, look, I know about the kiss and just the change in Mako in that moment. He's just like, oh, my God, he got called out so hard. Oh, man. And, you know, it's something. Uh, Asami just wants to get to the bottom of it. She's just like, look, like, let's just hash this out. But Mako deflects and is, you know, we have we have more important things to worry about right now. You know, we, we there's a war happening, all of this stuff. I mean, it's it's a convenient excuse, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like it's a little bit of what Katara does, uh, you know, during um uh, oh, uh, right before the final battle. Yes, right? right before the final battle. It's like not now, Aang, and it's just like, you know, but it's it's a little bit different than that. Whereas like Asami's just like you've been unfaithful, you've been lying. I need to get to the bottom of this. Whereas Aang's just like, please love me, and Katara's just like, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, of all of them, Asami's lost a lot. Like, uh, Bolin and Mako didn't have much in the beginning and have gained a lot. Yes. Korra's certainly gained a lot. I mean, she's had losses and gains, but of all of them, Asami has had the most brutal losses throughout the season, you know, with her father's betrayal and all this stuff. She's, you know, borderline you know giving up her lifestyle essentially like she's still rich but at the same time she's obviously not living the same life she did putting herself in danger she's a non-bender mm. going up against you know people who are highly trained and skilled granted she herself is as well but you know she 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 doesn't she doesn't deal with things the way Mako does where Mako's sitting there like you said like deflecting like she's like I'm gonna take this all head on and deal with it because she's put up with a lot of crap this season. Yeah. It's so, I'm so glad that you brought that up. That is, it, this really is such a turning point for Asami. And like, it just is, you know, again, it's the idea where it, for someone who is like being like, 
you know, hurt and beaten up in terms of like losing things, you would think that it's just like, you know, there is the temptation of a character being a woe is me and just like, oh gosh, like, how am I going to get from this? Instead, Asami's resolve just hardens as the season progresses. And it's just like, it really is such a great testament to her trajectory as as a character in this the whole series and how she goes from you know when we first see her just someone who has like doe eyes over mako to this incredibly strong-willed independent woman who runs this incredibly successful company and makes amazing decisions so it just like it really is setting up so much and it just it pains me to think of like the writers thinking that this was only going to be one season because like to make characters like that and then just this is all we get i know and the fans are really invested in her too like there was a lot of people who were like you know everybody's rooting for mako and cora from the beginning because that seemed like the obvious choice because that was the only choice we really had in the beginning (laughs) um and I think some people were really thrown off when Asami was thrown into the mix and Mako went with her and everybody felt so betrayed by that because <laughs> it felt like, you know, literally like there goes Mako Kora, it's gone forever. But, you know, I think in the end, even when when things change later on in the seasons, I think a lot of us really took to Asami. She just really is a rock in the river, like just sitting there Mm. getting pummeled by the flow of the river and the rapids and just staying put and not yielding to anything. She is, she ends up being to me, probably one of the most impressive characters. And this really is like that. I think this episode is really Asami and Lynn. This is where these two really shine the most. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, I, we haven't even gotten to that point yet. And I'm already just like, I'm starting to get crinkle tinkles about like what happens there. Oh my gosh. Uh, so getting into that, uh, Tenzin is uh, preparing to meet with the rest of the Republic City Council. Well, what remains now that Tarlock is uh, gone. Um, and uh, he asks Lynn to look after his family. It's this very heartwarming moment where he is standing out in the courtyard with her they are alone and you can tell he's uncomfortable with approaching her with this and wanting to say like look i i understand it might be awkward but i just i there's no one else that i would want to look after my family and lynn is you know of course wants to do it but then pema walks in and sees them (laughs) and you can kind of you feel that tension and it's such a great mirror to like what is happening between Korra, Asami, and Mako right now (laughs) because there's like a lot of this just like uh, but even though like I I think it's just like it's interesting because I I don't think that Pema thinks like oh she's gonna try to like you know steal him in this moment it's just I think that Pema had to I just think of the journey that she had to have as a person with dealing with the fact that Lin Beifong was her husband's ex and just how strong-willed and assertive and on her toes she had to be with that whole situation. Because, I mean, it's just like you, you can't let, you can't let like anything kind of slip by because like when you're dealing with such like a strong personality like that, you know, if you if you stop paying attention, everything will be taken away. <laughs> well, and imagine the pressure of that situation too. She is trying to pursue the son of Angkora, and her competition is the daughter of Toph. Yeah, I mean, it feels like you're trying to warm your way into this like very exclusive club that you know, especially as a non-bender who. At, the, at this point, like, like I mean, I'm not trying to be mean to Pema. I like Pema as a character. But to be fair, aside from bearing really awesome kids, she herself has never been given any major accomplishments in the story. Mm. She managed to marry Tenzin, and she has some really awesome kids, and she has some really good one-liners periodically. But for the most part, we don't get a lot of Pema in the series. And so, you know, here are these people who are descended from legends who they themselves become legends that's some pretty intimidating shit to go up against yeah. <laughs> i mean 
that's got to be so intimidating. But it speaks volumes about Pema that she actually did pursue this and succeeded. I give her mad props for that. Yeah. And, and I think it's understanding that, you know, she recognizes that she is not going to be this type of figure because I think that that's also what Tenzin probably more fell in love with because it's this idea that, you know, do you think about already Tenzin has so much on his shoulders and this pressure to like, he is the only air nomad after his father. And it's just like, there's this immense amount of pressure now. And it's this idea of like, okay, you know, to add, try to add the pressure of like, oh, am I going to be with like the daughter of Toph Beifang? And like, you know, I I feel like it's a testament to him being like, no, I want, I I I want love for what it is. Um, but the other side of it too is that I think that if an Airbender and an Earthbender have a child, there's also a chance that their children could be earthbenders. And it's just like, if you're thinking about continuing the air nomad race, nah, <laughs> we're getting into a whole like genetics discussion with that. I feel like my deep dive into that. Yeah. I really need a, a confirmation of how this all works from like Mike and Brian, like is it genetics? Is it a gamble of fate? Is there something about, you know, is it like an astrology thing? Like if, if, if this constellation's here and that moon's here, then there's like a 75% chance that this person might be this. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, I really would love someday to have the question answered of, you know, is it literally just at random, the ability to bend, or is there a pattern to it? Um, depending on, you know, the spirituality of a person, blah, blah, blah. That would be interesting. But yeah, I mean, to be fair, if you are essentially trying to repopulate an entire group of people, um, hit, hit, shacking it up with an earthbender is going to decrease your chances of having <laughs> airbenders and increase your chances of having earthbenders, to be fair. And somehow, uh, Tenzin, despite his, uh, his, I don't want to call him a pushover because obviously he puts his foot down. But to be fair, compared to his wife, he is a pit pushover. He's obviously got some genes that put some airbenders back in the world. You know what? He is Aang's son, after all. You know, there's like bits of Katara we do see in him. But for the most part, Tenson has a lot of that pushover Aang in him as well. Oh, my God, he does. <laughs> he is such a pushover for his wife. I mean, it's really endearing, though. Like, it's, And that's what makes it so funny, this entire interaction, because... You know, sometimes I'm never quite sure what's awkward for him. Is it simply his interactions with Lynn or does he feel like, you know, Lynn and Pema somehow innately shouldn't get along? Because, you know, even though we see Lynn and Pema interact, I mean, I don't see, I mean, there is no animosity between the two of them. There's been some moments of like, huh, with Pema, but for the most part, those two have no hostility towards each other whatsoever. It really just all comes from Tenzin. Tenzin seems to have it all worked up in his head that it should be something more awkward than it actually is. And I think he and Lynn obviously have their moments, but Lynn and Pema obviously don't have any issues with each other. Yeah. Well, and it also makes me realize too, and I think this is the last I want to like kind of dive on this part, but like, you know, you think about it too. We meet Boomy and we meet Kaya. Neither of them are married. So on top of being the only airbender, <laughs> on top of having to repopulate, <laughs> so he is the only one out of Aang and Katara's children who gets married um, at all. <laughs> that's, you know, that's fair. That is a lot of pressure. And, and of course, he does take that mantle, even though it's not necessarily thrust upon him. He does feel that need, obviously. And it does... I guess it does make sense, some of the choices he made in life. Well, and I think that just like Tenzin just deeply cares about everyone around him. And I think that sometimes when you care so deeply about everyone, you start worrying about like, you know, am I caring enough for this person? Or is my caring for them going to make it seem like I am not caring enough for them or this, that or whatever? Yeah. Tenzin, man, there's just, just what you know, one of these days uh, when we finish kind of our core discussion, like Tenzin's going to be a really fun 
like deep dive episode or deep dive character uh, discussion because there's break him down psychologically. Yes. <laughs> um, so it, the, the, the scene shifts away from air temple Island. Um, we go to for public city and we get this scene with like the fire nation representative on the council <laughs> as she is getting ready to leave. And she is like <laughs> calling back to her husband, just like, "Do you know where I put the keys?" No, dear. <laughs> yes, dear. The door, dear. <laughs> just <laughs> such such a delightful like little archetype in this scene. Just like setting up something very comedic, but then of course she opens the door, and we see some suspicious looking guys say. We're here to take care of your, uh, oh, it's something rat. I didn't it's write... rat spiders. Rat spiders. Uh, <laughs> people think rats in cities are scary. Imagine if there were freaking rat spiders oh, in a city. Oh, my God. Like, I'm just envisioning rats with eight creepy legs, and I'm like, nope, nope, you better get in here and just burn my house down. Yeah, just like, but the idea of of a rat who is already scary enough on the ground, but a rat that can just like climb on every surface imaginable. <laughs> like, that is horrifying. Oh, imagine how big its webs would be, too. <laughs> and it would have the mandibles instead of a mouth. Oh, no. oh God. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I'm so glad they don't actually animate those creatures. Some, <laughs> I don't need that kind of a nightmare. Some things are left to the imagination. Oh man. Um. So you know, of course, uh, they they knock her out with this gas. Um. And the final line we hear is her husband going, "Dear, dear." <laughs> and I just thought that this scene in particular, um, it reminded me a little bit of like when the Dai Li. Uh, we're taking out the Council of Five and the end of book two of um, Last Airbender and how, you know, you just saw kind of like a glimpse into like these council members like out and about or like, you know, things like that. And then suddenly like the daily popping out of shadows or being very discreet and sneaky and just kind of, you know, having to surprise them in that way. You know, whereas the Council of Five were Earthbenders, seemingly this woman is not a firebender. I'm not sure if she is or not, but like. She's not expecting this whatsoever, and they they get her uh, they get her down. Uh, we clearly see that this has been Amon's plan. He understands that by taking out um, oh she was electrocuted, not gas. Thank you for that clarification. Yes, that was true. I did watch this episode a few days ago, even though we I wrote this. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting though because. You know, it, it's Amon saying, like, if I can take out these representatives, take out the leaders of the government, then it is that much easier to incite chaos and a revolution. Um, because if they don't have people to turn to, then, well, they're going to turn to me. So that brings us to the police headquarters. Uh, Tenzin is now fending off an attack uh, of like assailants trying to take him out as being one of the council members. Um, but he is able to kind of like thwart them off and we get Tarlock's assistant coming back. And uh, <laughs> as everything is kind of going to shit across the city, the assistant just goes, it is a tragic day indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very, very dramatic individual. Oh, my gosh. So wonderful. Um, You know, but Tenzin looks out. The city is burning. Explosions are going off. Airships everywhere. And Amon is bombing the city, looking over it all in one of his airships. And it's just... It's crazy. Like, you really get a sense of just... Again, we've been talking about it as we've been going through these episodes. The forethought and the planning that went into all of this. This is Amon looking at everything and seeing all of the pieces fall into motion. Everything with his plan now all going going off. And it's crazy. I don't know. What, 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 what was this like for you kind of revisiting this moment? Cause I remember I got some, I got some chills revisiting this scene here. Oh yeah. It's a goosebump scene because you know, it's not, it's, it's not, it's very reminiscent of the first 
season, when, or not the first season, sorry, the first series in the third season when uh, the Fire Nation is finally able to utilize the airships. Mm. Like when you see tons of airships show up with that Fire Nation symbol on it, it's just devastating in that original series. And I don't think it's any less devastating here. Like even though we know the police have the airships, um, the fact that Amon even has as much as he does, thank you, Sato, um, it's it's scary. You know, this is this is, you know, a terrorist organization that's being funded by what's, you know, the equivalent of a billionaire with amazing tech. And, you know, it's really easy to talk about how scary they are, but I do have to give them props because they're kind of an awesome bad guy. Yeah. Like they have the coolest stuff and they are not I mean if they had succeeded and they had managed to get you know at least Republic City which isn't much compared to the rest of the world but if they had gotten roots in Republic City they would have been a force to reckon with for the other nations and that alone is pretty impressive absolutely i mean that that's the whole thing is that suddenly you get someone who takes over the cultural hub of the entire world that is this intersection of all the different nations and they have conquered that against the strongest benders against the highest amount of like you know like force like you know in terms of just across the board like where you would think something like that couldn't happen and it does suddenly everyone has to look over there and be like whoa um what are we gonna do about this and did you hear that he can take people's bending away i know i can now that's that's the true terror too if they yes. if, if it's been a successful campaign and they had taken over republic city successfully um you know there's nothing worse than an army that lacks morale and imagine how terrifying it would be for benders to face a capable group of fighters that can take away bending i mean you suddenly have you know low morale against a technologically advanced group of individuals that have the ability to combat benders and i'm kind of sad because you know with Avatar The Last Airbender, we were always working our way towards the Fire Lord. There wasn't a different boss per season the way there is for Korra. Mm. I feel like they they could have ran an entire series just going with the non-benders because let's face it, that's always going to be an issue. No matter what happens in this world, there are always going to be non-benders who feel left out by the benders in society. And this is an incredible push for uh, non-benders. And especially even though Amon wasn't successful, we all know that sentiment is going to linger. History proves that these things don't just go away. Um, you've either got to work towards mending the bridge or you have to accept that it's going to be conflict again in the future at some point. It's just going to be a new face and it's just it's going to keep happening. It's a cycle. So it's, uh, it, it was really intense seeing this because there's a part of me that's of course horrified for all the characters, but then there's a part of me that's like, this is so badass that they gave the non-benders this moment because this is a moment for non-benders. This is pointing out that you don't have to be a bender to be strong. You have the ability to fight back. There are things that they can do to help themselves and make themselves powerful, which is, you know, why Amon is so appealing is they don't have to feel weak anymore. They can feel like they can stand up to the, to the benders. So it, I have so many mixed emotions about it. Yeah, no, it it really, it, it all circles around this idea. It's, it's the giant. What if, what if they knew that they were getting more seasons? Because again, that was the benefit of the last airbender is that, you know, they were planning for three seasons you know, there's a, there's a climax at the end of book one of Avatar, but, you know, like you said, the end fight is the Fire Lord. And that's what they're building towards. But I, I, we'll, we'll definitely get into more of this, especially once we, you know, because I, I have lots of thoughts on this in terms of, like, what we see in the final episode of this season. Because it's it's interesting, because there's so much that I would love to see done differently but then there's so much that i'm so 
glad that it was done the way it was. Um, We need an avatar philosophy episode. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, So, you know, as everything is kind of going real bad in Republic city, uh, the crew heads out. Um, They make their way to the city and find the Sodomobile. Um, (laughs) Great scene where Bolin's like, what are we going to do with all these parking tickets? And Mako just burns all of them. (laughs) And in that moment, I was like, ah, you know, when I was living in Chicago, I wish I could do the same, Mako, and not have to worry (laughs) about those parking tickets. And it's ironic considering his future career, too. Right? (laughs) It's so beautiful. Oh, man. And it's great. Uh, Asami goes to the back of the car, gets the Equalist glove, and, uh, you know, puts it on. This will come in handy. And then she looks over at Mako. Why don't you sit with Korra? (laughs) And she gets in the driver's seat, adjusts the mirror, and just, like, like glances back there and just shoots daggers at Mako. And I am loving how unapologetic Asami is with her rage in this moment. She's like, I will not be denied <laughs> like my anger towards you. I know we have bigger fish to fry, as you said, but I am still going to give you so much side-eye in all of this. Because, <laughs> all that sass. Yes. You know, for all, but for all of her spite, Asami stays focused. That's the beauty yes. of it is, you oh. know, you have those characters who end up undermining their team because of anger toward it internal strife but asami's you know in that moment she has no enemy but mako but when an enemy is put in front of her nothing else matters so i i i have to admire her like for all that sass and all that spite she is such no pun intended she is such a driven individual when it comes to her goal Mm, yes beautiful pun beautiful (laughs) um you know but but seriously though and i think it's also it's what makes her it makes sense that what makes her a successful businesswoman because she can separate the emotion out when like the time calls for it. Um, and we see that eventually in her like dealings with Varric and what she has to do later on in the seasons with like saving the company and everything. It's, it, it, it's, it's amazing. Ah, oh, gosh, this is turning into very much an Asami appreciation episode. Well, that's just because <laughs> we haven't gotten to Lin yet. Uh, so we get to uh, back to the police station. Uh, Tenzin is there with uh, Chief Saikon and the others. And we get this chilling scene. Calls are coming in. Reports of districts being assaulted. Tenzin sends out a telegram to the United Forces. The police force is spread too thin. The alarm sounds and then it stops and the power goes out. While we were watching this episode, Abigail, she's Abigail said to me, she's like, that's when you know it's really bad when the alarm <laughs> stops going. <laughs> when the emergency alarms go off, you are screwed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like having a tornado warning start to go off, like those really loud sirens, then just cuts, and it's like, oh my God. Yeah, and it's still rumbling outside. You're like, oh no. <laughs> We're all going to die. Yes. Uh, And then gas starts to pour in through the vents. Um, But luckily, they have an airbender with them. Uh, Tenzin uh, forms a handy-dandy airbending uh, bubble uh, to get everybody out. Um, But as they make their way out, they see that there are Equalists and Mecha Tanks. And we get such a wonderful, like, 80s action movie line from Tenzin. Not these Mecha Tanks again. (laughs) (laughs) With a classic face, too. Like, Tenzin has the best faces for these moments to go along with his lines. Uh, truly. Um, and then we just see the Equalist taking everyone out with an incredible effectiveness. I mean, it just, it, they have solutions for everything. They have like magnets. Science. Magnets for... Science. Yeah, I mean, all the science. Sato has planned everything he knows how to take down these people and he has prepared contingencies for it um and they take them down but then the crew arrives and then this is where we get to see yes sato has made these preparations but what you cannot predict and you cannot adapt quickly enough sometimes with your science and technology is the adaptation of humanity 
And this is what happens when the crew gets to these mecha takes. They have adapted and they have learned. They shoot lightning out. Mako redirects. Well, he absorbs this lightning. It is a not like your traditional redirect. Like he absorbs he absorbs this lightning into him, holds it, and then sends it back at the mecha tank and fries it's so it. So amazing. Ugh. And then we get Korra like pulling a classic move out of like Avatar the Last Airbender with the Fire Nation tanks, taking the water, blowing out the steam vents, and just like f- making those bust out. And then that takes away their power. And uh, I mean, even to not, I completely forgot about this with the beginning of the scene, Bolin creating the ramps for the car. <laughs> and I love how they're just like, <laughs> all right, car, you've served us well. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it becomes the ultimate just like <laughs> goodbye dear friend <laughs> it just crashes into one of those wrecks it and then asami taking out the chi blockers using the glove and just using her training and it's finally a battle that they win against the she Eagles. takes out five yeah i counted she takes out five chi blockers that is amazing yep yep <sighs> And so they rescue Tenzin. They get everyone back to uh, Air Temple Island. Um, and they see that airships are now heading their way. Um, again, I just wanted to comment. Amon's planning is insane. He has so much of this mapped out. He understands that he needs to send out contingencies to the Air Temple Island. He needs to send out going to the police headquarters, taking out like all communications so they can't reach out to anyone. He is turning this into an isolated incident so that there is no outside help that is going to help. And even as we see, even though they get the telegram out to the United Forces, he has contingencies for that as well. It's crazy. He is such a competent villain. It's amazing. Ugh. So, he deserved more than one season. We yeah, all know it. Yes, yes. Uh, but of course, you know, we get kind of a little bit of a cliche in this moment, but it works for me still. Uh, Pema comes out and, oh no, the baby is coming. <laughs> Not now, baby. Not now, baby. <laughs> Milo has the best one-liners. He is, they wrote him really well as a child. We all know children say those perfect and inappropriate things all the time. They wrote Milo so well. (laughs) Um, You know, and then we get the chi blockers coming down. The white Lotus is fighting against them. Um, We get Lynn versus the Lieutenant and the chi blockers. It's this just very impassioned moment where she knows she is to like, try to defend them. This is what Tenzin asked for her to do. And then, you know, the lightning comes in and that's what I was just like, she's going hard, but like, I love Lynn in this moment, but I think it's just like she's getting into the flow and so used to using her metal that I'm like, you know that they're using electricity. And it's just like, it it makes me think that it's just like if someone is using metal more, is it like a fact that they are not just going to use earth nearly as much? And I think that that's that's just uh, that's just what kind of came through. It's just like she doesn't use her earth bending nearly as much as she uses her metal bending. And I am kind of curious too, to a certain extent, because I mean, not, not to say that creators might not have thought of this, but I do wonder because obviously different metals conduct differently than others. You know, I assume that since iron's one of the most common metals that's possibly iron or steel is what they're using, which isn't actually that conductive. Um, so it makes me wonder how much wattage they're putting out in a metal that's not as you know conductive as something like copper. Like, it's got to be really strong to take a person out. Mm. Um, and so I do wonder how well that translates. I wonder if it's one of those things where it's like his weapon puts out this much wattage, but only this much gets to her. But I assume that, you know, they might have done their research and been like, we need X amount of wattage or whatever measurement they would use in this alternate universe to be able to take a person out through this very non-conductive metal. Because think about it. I mean, you don't want to do copper bending. <laughs> because yeah. There is the danger of like conducting some really serious uh, currents. But, you know, it's. <laughs> it's one of those things where I would really love to break down in one episode, like the science of the equalist, because it is interesting because we get so much science out of this, you know, the platinum that's so purified, it's almost impossible to bend and everything. There's, 
it's it's really fascinating that they they are able to study and develop technology that can compete with benders, especially one as powerful as Lynn. Mm, that's such a good point. Great idea for a future episode. I I would love to do that. Um, so uh, of course you know we have we have this fight. Lynn is at a low point, but then you know here come the airbending kids. Uh, they swoop in. They start wrecking <laughs> everyone. Milo with his just insane fart bending moment. Just, Taste my fury! <laughs> it just farts right in this guy's face. Like an oh, airbending. Sulfur bending. Oh, God. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, already if someone just is like, farts near you, it's rough. But like an airbending <laughs> fart right in your face like your face and clothes are gonna reek for weeks uh, especially milo too i i mean i imagine they have that strong vegetarian diet in which case i imagine there's a lot of beans and lentils yeah. in his diet so it can't be pleasant <laughs> it's so true oh my gosh i didn't even think about it from that oh wow yeah <laughs> um you know but but it's interesting okay. you know i Something I thought of as I was kind of like writing the breakdown for this episode and I thought about afterwards was, you know, they rush through these because it's it's just it is it is fast storytelling. It's great. I think it matches the kind of era in a way. But part of me was like, you know, I would have loved to have seen a moment where it was just a short scene between Janora Iki and Milo having this moment where suddenly they have to decide we have to fight and it being in conflict with the air nomad philosophy of nonviolence. And I mean, I, I don't know if I'm thinking too outside the box because obviously I, I'm sure they've seen Tenzin fight before, but it's this idea that just like this seemingly is like their first actual like major fight that they engage in and but i can see what you're talking about though like i could see like the debate leading up to it when they realize that lynn's being attacked and i could see janora hesitating not because janora doesn't want to fight but because one she follows the rules and they were told to stay inside and two because they're supposed to avoid conflict whenever possible and i can see iki and milo being the ones driving yeah. her towards it yes yeah absolutely you know milo just like through his like insane young boy like i just want to like beat up everything <laughs> and Iki just yeah and Iki <laughs> just being like this will be fun <laughs> <laughs> let's go kick some butt <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's still a great scene but again i think it's just like those are the sacrifices you have to make for uh for that kind of uh fast-paced storytelling um, so, and then, um, the crew arrives and then they ride Naga out to escape the island. Cause they're like, all right, these equalists have been stopped for now. We need to get the air, air nomad kids out of here. We need to get you guys into the city. And, you know, they ride Naga out and like Naga's fine, but like five episodes ago, they all piled on Naga and Naga's like, I cannot deal with you all. <laughs> <laughs> little, well, little. <laughs> I mean, we 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 know that emergency situations give that boost of adrenaline. That's like, true. That's necessary. true. And but... I mean, Naga might have been working up to it. You know, we don't know what squat she does. You know, behind the scenes. You know, you are so right. I am totally not taking to the into the account like the Naga squats that are happening behind the scenes. You know, because it's not just the fact that she carries them. It is the fact that she carries them, jumps through the air. Here comes a lieutenant <laughs> and just bear slaps this lieutenant oh my god she, that was naga for the win naga was the mvp of team avatar in this episode like that yes. was such an awesome moment you know and i'm so glad that they gave naga that moment too because you know what appa had so many of those moments in all throughout avatar there were so many times where like the gang was in a tight spot and then just Appa comes in and just like, I'm just going to flap my tail and just send everybody flying like 50 yards away. Even Momo got moments like that. Yes. Poor Naga is definitely underrated in this series. Well, granted, I think, you know, Naga is, uh, I would say, 
more so than Appa in a way, more so out of her element. Um, because I think that a polar bear dog is, I'm sure, more accustomed to kind of the frigid, you know, the frigid poles and kind of the terrain that comes from there. And it's like taking someone going from the tundra into a metropolis. And it's just like the fact that she is like adapted so well is like incredible in and of itself. <laughs> and I definitely feel and I do agree that it's hard to compare her to Appa in some ways, too, because she's like a small passenger car to where Appa was like a bus. <laughs> So, I mean, for sure, like the applications of Naga are not the same. So it, and I don't think, and naturally she can't bend either. Like technically Appa can bend yes. being one of the creatures that taught bending to the air nomads where Naga is not quite on that legendary status. She's legendary in our hearts, but you know, mythologically, she's not exactly a legendary creature. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So we get this really touching scene, Tenzin and the key, uh, Tenzin and the kids, they get to meet Rowan, um, their new little baby brother. Uh, it's a moment of reprieve, but hey, we got more Equalists coming. We all got to go. <laughs> so Tenzin and the family escape on the Bisons with Lynn, with the airships. Oh, God, I'm going to cry. Oh, the airships in hot pursuit. And then we get this scene. And I love that it is, there's no, there's no dialogue. It is just Lynn looking back at the airships we see a pov shot of her looking at the air like at tenzin and his family and then we get that like shot of her looking back and you can tell like it's just this it's so so much emotion there and she just tells him like get them out of here and she flies off the back of oogie onto the airship and it's this beautiful moment because we know and she knows that she's not coming back from this in a way and she gets to the top of this airship she is following in the footsteps of her mother i mean it's beautiful the symmetry of like just Lynn having this moment living out a reality of a story that she heard, you know, that, that her own mother did tearing up the whole of this airship and doing this to save these, these, the, this family that she loves. And, you know, she manages to wreck the first one makes the jump to the second one, uh, but then can't make it to the she gets she gets shocked she gets taken down and i mean i i i just want to give you a moment to to be able to comment on like this moment here before we get to uh lynn's final scene uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so heartbreaking it is so hard because we all know exactly what's going to happen mm. it's not it's not we know lynn's not gonna die it's a kid show but it's it's like worse though mm. and it's it's I think that in some ways, Asami and Lynn's stories parallel a bit in this first season um, because so much is taken away from Lynn. You know, she had to give up her job and work outside the law. And this job means a lot because even though she has a rough relationship and, and not the best view of her mother, she has obviously tried her best to follow in those footsteps. And so she gave up a job that was like a legacy job, essentially, um, to go save her people. Um, she sacrificed herself to save Tenzin and his family. I mean, and she, when Tenzin asked her to protect his family, she didn't even hesitate. She, she said, that's fine. I'll protect your family. Like she didn't even need a moment to think about it. Mm. She is such a selfless individual. And now she's about to give up even more, not just, you know, that she was captured, but we all know how it's going to end. We know what's going to happen to her. And it's, it's such a heartbreaking moment because she is given everything in this season and it it feels like she cannot get a break. And I was just, I, my eyes were watering as soon as mm. she got caught. I'm like, Oh, I've no. seen this before. Why does it still hurt? Uh, well, and, and on top of the other things that she lost, she, she like all the, the, her metal bending like team, like all of the metal benders that she uh, like assumedly trained, uh, 
they all lost their metal bending. And in a way, she lost all of that time that she invested in them. And just like this relationship that she was able to help them like form with this, with the elements. And again, it's just, we, we end with it's Lynn's sacrifice. Last episode, Kevin and I were talking about how this idea that taking someone's bending away is in a way taking away their identity. We've seen this throughout the season and in a way it is almost like a death of some sorts. We talked about how, you know, it's a kid's show. There's not going to be death. I mean, the way that this scene is storyboarded, Lynn being forced to her knees there in the rain, a man standing. You have one chance. Tell us where they are, and you can keep your bending. I'll never tell you. And then just her looking up to the sky, a man does what he does, and suddenly she collapses. It is almost as if a moment of just of someone being to, you know, put it, you know, frankly and, you know, more bluntly shot and killed in a moment. I mean, it's just it's this tragic moment where she knows so much of what she knows as her life and her existence is over. And again, this idea of the legacy, the legacy of being the daughter of Toph Beifong. And it ends with her not being able to continue carrying on that earthbending legacy. It's tragic. It's so tragic. I, I oh my gosh. <laughs> right in the feels. I know. It hurts. It hurts so much. Like her and Asami both. Now, you know, Asami got the shine in this episode because she is even though she has her conflict with uh, Mako throughout the throughout this uh, episode, um, there's a bit of recovery going on because her the big shock for her has happened, and and she's hit a low, but you know she she is able to start building herself back up because she's dealt with the shock of her father, and we see that she's she knows how to handle Mako. Um, so you know while asami definitely shines part of that shine is her coming back from her low point i think to where you know when you first start this episode it didn't feel like lynn could hit another low after everything she's been through and yet um just blow after blow keeps coming and it's it is really hard to watch lynn go through this because she's such a strong individual and she's always she walks her talk like she mm. is always putting herself out there for others, always defending what she believes in. Uh, she put her life on the line for Tenzin's family. She refused to to give up Cora in order to save her bending. Like she gave up everything. And it is it's always hard to watch somebody, you know, is a good person and who's doing everything right. Get torn down like that. And mm. it is. uh It's too much. <laughs> But even though it ends with tragedy in this scene, we are given a moment of hope as the telegram is delivered and we see a man set a course for a public city as you wish, General Iroh. Not only do we get this name, (laughs) not only do we get this name, but we get your boy Dante Bosco coming back as a voice actor. That was such an amazing moment of just being like. <gasps> I definitely screamed the first time I saw that episode. <laughs> the very first time. Like, oh. I was squealing that happened. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. I mean, I love it. I, I love that they they just were like, you know, who cares that it's the same person? It is his grandson, and we are doing it because Dante Vasco is the man. <laughs> and he is basically just a scar-free Zuko. We all know it. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> uh, oh, man. So, uh, yeah, that brings us to the end of this. Uh, any uh, <sighs> any any final thoughts on uh, episode 10, Turning the Tides? 
Well, I will say I really did love the moment with the kids because I think my favorite part about the kids fighting alongside Lynn was it was very reminiscent of some of the the very first season of Avatar. Like, because mm. even though they're children fighting against these well-trained adults that mean to harm them, um, it definitely ha- it, it is that comedic relief, like the happy-go-lucky airbenders fighting off, you know, ex enemy and stuff like that. Like it, it, it definitely had a feel of season one avatar in that moment. And, you know, technically this is a season one of a new avatar, but it, it, it has mostly been, um, definitely a little bit darker and more geared towards a slightly higher age bracket than the original series was. But Mm. I do think that was, uh, that was some nice original avatar feels. And, um, I do want to mention um, one moment that had me giggle was Tenzin when they were trying to capture him on his way to the council and his beard tingled right before he died <laughs> an attack. And I'm just sitting here like, I'm sitting here thinking of this is the equivalent of Toph's foot. <laughs> <laughs> he just gets this beard tingle and it like goes, oh, my, my airbender senses are going or my beard senses yes. are tingling. You know, it just, it cracked me up when I saw that. I was like, uh, oh, that is so beautiful. Well, we, we get a beautiful callback to that in, uh, in book three of Korra when he's like training all of like the new air, the, the, the new airbenders. And they tell the one kid like, look, shave your head. And then he shaves his head and like, he gets that like tingle and he's like, oh, yes. I was able to sense this. <laughs> Uh, it was one of my favorite moments was the beard tingle (laughs) yeah i I mean this this episode has got some really really incredible moments i i just i mean this finale for lynn like i mean just with her making this sacrifice uh how it reflects um you know it, it, it reflects uh her mother's journey and to the end of it and the fact is this is the last that we see Lynn of the season until the very end. Um, she is removed from the narrative at this point. And again, it's this idea of like, if they thought this was only one season, that was like this tragic end to her. Of course we know how it resolves, but still it's just like, it's this like really, really tragic moment. And I think regardless of what happens at the end, it's like, that's trauma. That is that is such a like traumatic event for her to deal with, and it just felt so raw and so real and so on point for her character, and I just loved it. It's so good. <laughs> yep, uh, Lynn and Asami are definitely uh, some of our MVPs. Naga is definitely Team Avatar's MVP. I yes, mean, it was just the bear slap. An all girl team this, this episode. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening uh, to uh, this discussion of episode 10, Turning the Tides of the first book of Legend of Korra. Uh, first off, thank you, Korra. Uh, thank you. I almost called you Korra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not upset. I'm not upset. <laughs> well, thank you, Kristen, for uh, for joining me tonight for uh, tonight's episode. It's great to have you back on. Oh, man, I miss doing this. <laughs> So remember, folks, uh, you can find us on social media uh, on Instagram at Legend of Portalcast as well on Facebook at Legend of Portalcast, Twitter at Portalcast Pod. Um, you can also find us on our website at legendofportalcast.com uh, where you can listen in to the episodes. And while you're there, if you want to listen to it there, great. If you prefer to listen to it through uh, iTunes or Spotify, you'll find links on our website uh, to be able to subscribe there. And if you're there, feel free to leave us a review and a rating. We really appreciate it. And uh, again, just appreciate all the support you guys have been giving us so far. Um, and uh, appreciate the fact uh, we uh, we kind of were taking a, a skip. I know we said last, uh, well, two weeks ago that we were going to follow up with this episode, but I uh, appreciate you guys letting us kind of squeeze in our uh, next episode of Beyond Portalcast and discussion of Rise of Kyoshi, but uh, we'll be back uh, next week. We're going to be diving into some Avatar: The Last Airbender comics. Um, so, is it going to be Imbalance? Is it going to be The Search? Who knows? You'll just have to tune in next time. Thank you all so much again for listening. But for now, let us leave. <laughs>